0: Chapter 6 The Ransom for an Eye If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand-for-hand, foot-for-foot, burning-for-burning, wound-for-wound, stripe-for-stripe. Exodus 21, through 25 The question must be raised, Is the concern of humanists for the brutality shown by the Bible's eye-for-eye principle misguided? Shouldn't their concern be focused on the brutality of the criminal against the innocent victim? Is the lex talionis principle not a deterrent to crime, especially repeated crimes by a criminal class? Shouldn't our concern be with the victims of violent crime rather than with the criminals who commit them? We read of Adonai Bezek in the first chapter of Judges. Adonai Bezek, lord of Bezek, was a Canaanite king. The Israelites fought him and defeated him. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Threescore and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. Judges 1, 6, and 7. This Canaanite king's confession reveals that he recognized the justice of the punishment imposed on him by his conquerors. He had cut off the toes and thumbs of kings. Now he had suffered the same punishment. He had removed their anatomical tools of dominion. Now he had his removed. Problems of Interpretation This incident raises some difficult exegetical questions. Was the eye-for-eye principle literally applied in ancient Israel after the defeat of Canaan, Did Israel's courts really poke out people's teeth and eyes? If not, why not? Or is it merely that there are no clear-cut biblical records of such physical penalties being imposed by Israelite judges on Israelite citizens? The incident also raises some difficult historical questions. In the Christian West, judges have consistently refused to impose eye-for-eye physical penalties. In non-Christian societies, Permanent physical vengeance is quite common, for example, Islam's Sharia law. Why not in the West? What is it about inflicting permanent physical mutilation in contrast to whippings or other relatively impermanent forms of physical violence that so repels Westerners? The West's Future Orientation The West's impulse toward dominion in history is one possible answer. The West has been future-oriented as a direct result of its Christian eschatological heritage, a faith in linear history with a God-created beginning, a God-sustaining providence, and a God-governed final judgment. This vision of linear time made possible the development of modern science. The future orientation of the West, especially from the 17th century onward, and especially in Protestant societies, led to faith in long-term progress including long-term economic growth. Western people have understood the importance to the community of full production from all members. There is, or was, the psychological and social phenomenon called the Protestant ethic. Begging, for example, has not been favored in Protestant nations. Idleness has been frowned upon. Therefore, the realization that physical punishment can permanently reduce the productivity of any citizen repels the Westerner. The Western judge asks, What happens to the criminal after he has paid his debt? Why should the criminal, his family, his future employers, and consumers be deprived of his full future productivity? Why should any man be hampered in working out his own salvation with fear and trembling? Philippians 2.12 Wouldn't permanent physical mutilation tend to impair his future employment thereby luring him back into a life of crime? What if he should experience a moral transformation in the future? Western justice seems to recognize such problems, and so it has rejected physical mutilation as a legal sanction. Figuratively speaking, are we to interpret the eye-for-eye passage figuratively? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee and if thy right hand offend thee cut it off and cast it from thee Matthew 5:29a and 30a We recognize that he spoke figuratively he meant that the lusts of the flesh are so dangerous spiritually that even the loss of eye or hand is to be preferred therefore avoid moral contamination avoid lust 5:28 but the issue in Exodus 21:24 and 25 is that there has been physical injury inflicted on another person. The eye which the victim has lost is a literal eye. To interpret the eye-for-eye passage figuratively because Jesus interpreted eye figuratively in a very different context is not legitimate. There is no doubt that the thumb-for-thumb penalty was literally applied to Adonai Bezek. He recognized the justice of the penalty. Permanent physical mutilation is legitimate when applied to one who has committed a crime that has produced the same mutilation in another person. Yet the resistance of Western judges to impose this physical penalty on their own nation's citizens indicates that they have sought other ways to deal with criminals and victims in crimes involving permanent physical mutilation. Question. In cases other than manslaughter, the death of an innocent third party as a result of unwarranted violence as in the abortion of Exodus 21, 22, and 23, may some other penalty legitimately be imposed, on which meets God's standards of justice, as well as men's sense of justice. Option. Economic restitution. Say that an ox has been known to gore people in the past. It gets loose again and kills someone. The owner in this instance is held legally liable. In fact, he is to be put to death. Exodus 21.29. However, Exodus 21.30 provides an exception to the requirement that a crime that results in a person's death be punished by the execution of the person responsible. If there be laid on him a sum of money, then he shall give for the ransom of his life whatsoever is laid upon him. The death penalty is set aside at the discretion of the judges and the victim's heirs. The man pays a ransom for his life. The text does not specifically say that the ransom is paid to the victim's next of kin, but this is the familiar pattern in the Old Testament. The payment would become part of the dead person's estate, as if he were still alive and had been merely injured by the beast. The ransom is a restitution payment. There is no evidence that the ransom would go anywhere else except to the victim's heirs. The question can be raised, if the death of the owner of the ox does not benefit the victim's heirs, while the ransom does benefit them, does the lex talionis allow a comparable solution to the problem of the physically mutilated person? Instead of physically mutilating the criminal, may the judges legitimately impose a restitution payment? Jewish Commentaries Traditional Jewish explanations of the lex talionis principle point to a payment in lieu of physical mutilation. Nachmanides wrote in the 13th century concerning I, tacheth, for I. It is known in the tradition of our rabbis that this means monetary compensation. Such a usage of the term taketh to indicate monetary compensation is found in the verse, And he that smiteth a beast mortally shall pay for it, life, taketh, life. Leviticus 24.18, in which case taketh surely indicates monetary compensation. Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra commented that Scripture uses such a term to indicate that he really is deserving of such a punishment, that his eye be taken from him, if he does not give his ransom. For Scripture has forbidden us to take ransom for the life of a murderer that is guilty of death, Numbers 35:31. But we may take ransom from a wicked person who cut off any of the limbs of another person. Therefore, we are never to cut off that limb from him but rather he is to pay monetary compensation, and if he has no money to pay, it lies as a debt on him until he acquires the means to pay, and then he is redeemed. Nechamanides' citation of Abraham ibn Ezra indicates that he was disturbed by the literal wording of the eye-for-eye stipulation. By refusing to call for a literal application of the verse in the case of a poor criminal, and also by their refusal to call for indentured servitude as a way to repay the debt, these two Jewish medieval commentators softened the threat of the punishment. There are difficulties with this interpretation. It is ingenuous, but it has no explicit biblical precedent, and it may therefore be incorrect, even though it appears to conform to the implicit meaning of eye for eye. It involves speculation that relies heavily on the precedent of economic restitution in the case of the ox that gores someone to death, Exodus 21-21. 30. A separate case law that may not apply to the lex talionis law of Exodus 21, 24, and 25. But this view became common in the interpretation of Jewish law. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch commented on Exodus 21:25 in the early 19th century. Quote, the taking of this legal canon literally, in the sense of an eye for an eye, would be morally impossible for any idea of equity. End quote. Further, quote, The whole spirit of the text is what the traditional halakha, Jewish law, teaches, for example, that here it is only speaking of monetary compensation for the injury inflicted, end quote. Restitution and Equity In principle, the interpretation of the lex talionis as allowing economic restitution in place of physical mutilation raises some fundamental questions. First, Is the requirement of vengeance compromised by the imposition of a restitution payment? Is there some fundamental aspect of justice, or men's sense of justice, that should allow a man to buy his way out of an injury that he has inflicted on another person? If so, what is this long-neglected aspect of justice? Second, does this law so interpreted lead to class antagonism? What if the criminal is poor? He cannot pay what a rich man can afford to pay. Is it fair to allow a rich man to forfeit only money when the poor man must forfeit his eye or tooth or else become an indentured servant to pay off the debt? Will violent rich people become more careless than violent poor people with regard to injuring others? Are the rich being taught to care less for the law of God than the poor do? If the rich can buy their way out, is society thereby allowing the development of resentment among the poor? Who feel that the law is working against them? Is society implicitly subsidizing rich criminals? The most important questions are these Has the eye for eye principle been abandoned when economic restitution is substituted for physical punishment? Will God honor a society that abandons this literal principle? But what if the economic interpretation of Lex Talionis is denied, with the requirement that all criminals pay the full physical price rather than economic restitution? really be beneficial to their victims? The victim may need additional capital to compensate for his loss of productivity as a result of the injury. What benefit is it to him the criminal becomes equally hampered physically? Furthermore, there are important social consequences of denying the economic interpretation. What benefit is it to society that two people now will suffer from some physical impairment rather than only one? Is the dominion covenant better fulfilled when two men lose an eye or an arm rather than only one man? After he makes economic restitution to the victim, the criminal can work hard and perhaps regain his lost wealth, but he can never regain a lost eye. Society may benefit more in the long run because of the productivity that the convicted man retains. If he repents and becomes a law-abiding member of the community, his greater productivity increases the wealth of all those consumers whom he will serve as a producer. These questions deserve biblical answers. We can begin to discover answers by examining in detail how the substitution of economic restitution for physical mutilation might work. Establishing a Fair Payment Let us begin with the case of a victim who has lost his eye. A partially blinded person could insist on a particular restitution payment from the convicted criminal. He could say to the judges, Quote, tell that man that he can keep his eye, but only if he pays me 100 ounces of gold, end quote. The judges would then present this option to the criminal, your gold or your eye. If the criminal values his body more highly than he values the economic restitution demanded by the victim, he can pay the money. This is the principle of victim's rights in action. On the other hand, if he values the payment higher, or if he simply cannot afford to pay, then he can forfeit his eye. This is the principle of maximum specified sanctions in action. The criminal could also make payment by selling himself into indentured servitude, with the buyer paying the victim. But perhaps the convicted man would prefer to lose the use of part of his body rather than becoming a bondservant. He could reject the demand of the victim for economic restitution and insist instead on his legal right under biblical law to suffer the same physical mutilation. That he had imposed on the victim. The right to punishment. Each of the parties in this judicial dispute has biblically specified legal rights. The victim has the right to insist on the biblically specified maximum physical sanction, eye for eye. He also has the right to offer the criminal an alternative, one which appears to be less severe than the biblically specified physical sanction. If the alternative offered, to the criminal is not regarded by him as less severe, then he has the legal right to insist on the imposition of the biblically specified maximum sanction. He therefore possesses the right to be punished by the specified biblical sanction. His punishment is limited by the extent of the injury which he imposed on his victim. The punishment fits the crime. It is basic to the preservation of liberty that the State not be allowed to deny to either the victim or the criminal his right of punishment. While this principle of the right to punishment is at least vaguely understood by most people with respect to the victim, it is not well understood with respect to the criminal. The right to be punished is a crucial legal right, one which Paul insisted on at his trial. For if I be an offender, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar." Acts 25.11. If the state can autonomously substitute other criteria for deserved punishment, such as personal or social rehabilitation, then society loses its rights to be governed by predictable laws with predictable judicial sanctions. The Messianic State then replaces the judicially limited state. Neither the victim nor the criminal can be assured of receiving justice, for justice is defined by the state rather than by God in the Bible. If punishment is not seen as deserved by the criminal, and therefore his fundamental right, then he is delivered into the merciful hands of elitist captors who are not bound by written law or social custom. No one has described this threat more eloquently than C.S. Lewis. Quote, to be taken without consent from my home and friends, to lose my liberty, to undergo all those assaults on my personality which modern psychotherapy knows how to deliver... To be remade after some pattern of normality hatched in a Viennese laboratory, to which I never professed allegiance. To know that this process will never end until either my captors have succeeded, or I grown wise enough to cheat them with apparent success. Who cares whether this is called punishment or not? That it includes most of the elements of, for which any punishment is feared, shame, exile, bondage, and years eaten by the locust is obvious only enormous ill-desert could justify it, but ill-desert is the very conception which the humanitarian theory has thrown overboard, quote. The state represents God in history in his capacity as cosmic judge, Romans 13, 1-7. When a civil government's leaders say that the state represents any other agent or principle, the state has begun its march toward either tyranny or impotence. Either it will bring judgment on men and other states in the name of its deity, its official source of law, or else some other state will bring judgment on it and those governed by it in the name of a foreign deity. Only a rare nation like Switzerland can defend its borders for centuries, and then only by renouncing all thought of conquest in the name of defense and international neutrality. The mark of this transformation of the state is when the state insists on imposing the punishment in terms of the supposed needs of society, meaning ultimately the needs of the state's officers. When the state collects fines for use by the state rather than to pay victims, when it imposes prison sentences paid for by the taxes of law abiding citizens, and when it insists that every convicted criminal pay his debt to society, then the Messianic State has arrived. God has specified that the victim is his representative and in criminal cases, not the state, unless the victim is legally unable to represent himself, in which case the state acts as his trustee. Only if the state is the victim can it lawfully demand restitution. When the state presents itself as the universal victim of all crime, to which is owed universal restitution by criminals and taxpayers alike, it has asserted its own divinity. Benefits of Alternative Sanctions The proposed economic solution to the dilemma of the lex talionis offers at least three very real benefits. The first benefit is judicial. The victim has the right to specify the appropriate punishment. This punishment is limited only by the maximum penalty specified by biblical law, eye for eye. The biblical principle of victim's rights is upheld by the judges. If the victim believes that the criminal's act was malicious, And if he wishes to inflict the same damage on the criminal which he himself suffered, this is his legal option. To take this retributive approach, however, he necessarily forfeits all the economic advantages he might have received from a restitution payment from the criminal. He can exercise his legitimate desire for vengeance, his desire to reduce the criminal to a physical condition comparable to his own, but this desire for vengeance has a price attached to it. He is made no better off financially because of his enemy's suffering. In fact, he could be made slightly worse off. He, as a member of the economic community, loses his portion of the other man's lost future productivity. Assuming the man cannot overcome the effects of his lost eye or limb, vengeance in the Bible's judicial system has a price tag attached to it. This inevitably reduces the quantity of physical vengeance insisted on by victims, for biblical civil justice recognizes the judicial legitimacy of a fundamental economic law. Quote, The higher the price of any economic good, the less the quantity demanded. End quote. The second benefit of this interpretation of lex talionis is also ju- judicial. The criminal who is about to lose his eye or tooth is permitted to make a counteroffer. He has the right to be punished to the limit of the written law. But he also can suggest a less onerous punishment, less onerous for him, but possibly more beneficial to his victim. He can legally offer money or services in exchange for the continued preservation of his unmutilated body. The system puts him in the position of being able to pay in order to retain his limbs. He places a price tag on his body. This price tag makes it costly for the victim to pursue an emotion which had there been no crime, would be called envious. The desire to tear another person down, irrespective of the direct benefits to the person who is envious. But because there has been a crime, envy is legitimate in this case. It must be understood that getting even with a convicted criminal is a legitimate goal for the victim of a crime. God eventually gets even with Satan and his followers who have sinned against him. He pulls them down from their positions of power and influence. This process of pulling Satan down began with the Jesus' ministry, an event which was manifested by the power of his disciples. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, End quote. Luke 10, 17 through 19. The victims of violent crime are in an analogous position with God. Innocent people who deserve to be avenged. But grace still abounds in history, so the criminal is allowed to make a counteroffer to his victim, just as the sinner can make a counteroffer to God. The third benefit of this interpretation is social. The integrity of the legal system is upheld in the eyes of all the nation, Members of society, at large, cannot complain that the judges are playing favorites. The judges are not respecting persons. If a rich man loses money while the victim has lost the use of his body, this result has been the decision of the victim, not the judges. What is essentially a private dispute, victim versus criminal, rather than a conflict between classes, has been settled by the disputants. The victim has made his choice. Outsiders, therefore, have no valid moral complaint against the judicial system. This keeps the ideology of class conflict from spreading to the general population. This is a very important feature of the justice system in an era of class conflict, meaning an era of rhetoric by competing elites in the name of various classes. Insurance for criminals? Should the victim be denied the option of specifying the form of vengeance? Does it thwart justice to set up a judicial system where a rich criminal can offer to buy his way out? Worse, what if his rich insurance company can offer to buy his way out? If criminals could escape the likelihood of physical violence by means of monetary restitution, they might start buying insurance contracts that would enable them to escape the economic penalty of inflicting physical violence. This could be regarded as licensing criminal behavior. No one is going to co-insure another man's eye with his own eye, but the public has already set up co-insurance for monetary claims. Thus, by allowing economic restitution for crimes of violence, criminal behavior might be made less costly to the criminals. One answer to this objection is that insurance companies are unlikely to insure a person from claims made by victims if the man is a repeat violator. The risk of writing such contracts is too high. Private insurance contracts are designed to be sold to the general public and to keep premiums sufficiently price-competitive. Sellers exclude people known to be high-risks. Low-risk buyers do not want to pay for high-risk buyers. Furthermore, insurance policies often specify that the coverage is for civil damages rather than criminal acts. This is true of most automobile insurance policies. Policies specify exactly what is to be covered. The famous insurance industry principle of The large print giveth but the fine print taketh away. Policies actually designed by criminals to co-insure would be extremely unlikely. Violent criminals seldom think ahead. They do not work well with others. They are essentially antisocial people. A system of insurance company-subsidized crime could not last very long without government financial aid. The Auction for Human Flesh By allowing the substitution of an economic payment for actual physical disfigurement, the judges unquestionably do authorize an auction for human flesh. If a convicted criminal is allowed to pay the victim in order to avoid physical mutilation, he is participating in an auction. Such an implicit auction may sound crass, but so does poking out an innocent person's eye. So does all criminal behavior. Covenant-breaking men may not like to think of criminal behavior in such terms but this is what the bible teaches sin is the evil not economic restitution we begin our economic analysis of this auction process with a consideration of the victim let us assume that he has lost his eye he tells the judges that he wants to see the other man's eye poked out just as his was he offers the criminal no choice between mutilation and restitution Because the victim initially offers no alternative sanction, the criminal is then allowed to make a single counteroffer if he wants to. Assume that he makes this counteroffer. 100 ounces of gold instead of losing his eye. Perhaps he is a skilled craftsman who needs both eyes. Perhaps he fears disfigurement. In any case, he places a high premium on his eye. He bids 100 ounces of gold to retain it. Once the victim receives an offer from the criminal, he may change his mind about his commitment to seeing the criminal disfigured. Perhaps he did not suspect that he could get this much money from the criminal. Perhaps his wife has seen the wisdom of taking the money. He may conclude that he would much prefer 100 ounces of gold to the joy he would receive in seeing, with his remaining eye, his enemy brought low. After all, seeing his enemy part with 100 ounces of gold is also seeing him brought low, and the event brings other benefits, such as all the pleasures or security the 100 ounces of gold can buy, so he accepts the counteroffer. The criminal keeps his eye. In this case, the criminal is the high-money bidder. The victim values the gold more than he values the criminal's eye. The criminal places more value on his eye than the gold. Each man gets what he most prefers. The criminal has bought the right to determine What happens to his own body? He has bought the right to avoid mutilation. Consider the victim's other possible choice. He is still outraged at what has befallen him. He wants the criminal to share the same physical limitation. He is unwilling to accept the financial counteroffer. Now, economically speaking, the criminal had just placed 100 ounces of gold into the victim's lap. He had been willing to pay. The victim is not impressed or not sufficiently impressed. He figuratively hands the 100 ounces of gold back to the criminal. Keep your filthy money, you butcher. Keep your only remaining eye on your money. The victim has now matched the money bid of the criminal. He has forfeited the 100 ounces of gold that he might have received. He places a higher value on his legal ability to blind the other man's eye than he does on the 100 ounces of gold. So the victim gets what he values most the joy of seeing the other man lose his eye. But he pays 100 ounces of gold for this pleasure. The pleasure is biblically legitimate, but it is expensive. The criminal's 100 ounces of gold did not constitute a high enough bid. The victim might have agreed for more than the 100 ounces, but the criminal had not been willing to pay this much. The criminal keeps what he wants, the 100 plus ounces of gold that the victim might have accepted in payment. But which the criminal refused to offer. The criminal would rather have this larger quantity of gold than keep his eye. This is what the economists call reservation demand for this money. The criminal pays with his eye for his continued possession of the money. None of this suggests that the criminal can buy justice. Justice is what the court provides when it tries the case and imposes the victim's preferred sanction up to the limit of the law. The criminal is buying a specific sanction that he prefers by offering the victim an alternative which the criminal hopes the victim will prefer. It is an auction for flesh, not an auction for justice. The Private Slave Market To give the criminal access to capital sufficient to make the offer, the state must allow another auction for flesh, a slave market. Deny this and the criminal is thwarted in gaining what he wants, and so is his victim. The most valuable asset a criminal may possess is his own ability to work. If he is denied the legal right to capitalize this asset, he may not be able to offer a sufficiently high bid to the victim to avoid mutilation. The modern democratic theorist professes horror at such a thought. Why? Because the modern state's disciples want the state to have a monopoly on the slave market. The state imposes prison as the alternative to both the restitution, and slavery, an alternative which benefits neither the victim nor the potentially productive criminal. At this point, we return once again to the basic theme of the book of Exodus, the choice between slavery to man and service to God. It is therefore the question of Who is represented by the state, God or autonomous man? When autonomous man is represented by the state, then tyranny or impotence is the result. Autonomous man seeks to enslave others, for he seeks to imitate God, just as Satan imitates God. The state becomes the primary agency of this enslavement process. It should not be surprising to learn that the call for the abolition of Chattel slavery in the United States began in the 1820s in the Northeast, where the new state prison systems were also being implemented. Slavery may seem brutal, the Lex Talionis also may seem brutal. Judicially unregulated violence is more brutal. Injustice in the face of crime is more brutal yet. The high penalty imposed on the convicted criminal is intended to impress the criminal, potential criminals, and all ethical rebels of the majesty of God's law, and the high price God will impose eternally on those who break it. This, no doubt, repels the sense of justice of covenant breakers, but God is not concerned about the ethical sensibilities of covenant breakers. He is concerned primarily about His own majesty, which is reflected in His law, including the penalties imposed on those who transgress its provisions. Technological Progress and Restitution With the advent of modern technology it might be possible for the victim to secure a replacement eye. He might demand an operation, with the criminal's eye being transplanted as a replacement, or an exchange might be set up. The criminal's eye goes to an eye bank in exchange for an eye that might be more compatible biologically with the victim's eye. Alternatively, the judges could allow the criminal to pay for an operation for the victim and give the victim an additional payment equal to the value of the operation. The criminal would lose the money, but the victim would see again. This sort of economic resolution to the problem of eye-for-eye standard is ideal. The victim gains what he had lost, and the criminal pays for it, plus restitution for the victim's pain, fear, and trouble. The technological advances brought by Western and initially Christian civilization make possible the best solution for both parties, namely, the restoration of the injured man's sight but at the expense of the criminal. The technological progress that would be brought by a thoroughly Christian civilization would make possible a better set of options for both victim and criminal. The more faithful society's commitment to enforcing God's law, the more rapid the technological progress is going to be. Limiting One's Original Demands The threat of actual physical mutilation for the convicted violent criminal will always be present in a biblical legal order. The victim has lost his eye or tooth. The criminal deserves to lose his. But few criminals would sacrifice an eye if they can make restitution in some other way. They might sacrifice a tooth, but not an eye. The victim can legitimately demand the removal of the other man's eye, there is not much doubt. That he would prefer a large cash settlement to help him recover his lost productivity and forfeited economic opportunities. He might even be able to get a new eye through surgery. The rich man is allowed to buy his way out, but only at the discretion and direct economic benefit of the victim. On the other hand, the victim can demand his pound of flesh, but only by forfeiting the money that he might have been paid. What if the victim is really vindictive, What if he demands 1,000 ounces of gold for the other person's tooth? In all likelihood, the criminal would prefer to forfeit the tooth. Under this kind of judicial system, the victim must estimate carefully, in advance, just what the convicted person might be willing and able to pay. There must be no fallback position after the victim submits his pair of demands to the judges, physical mutilation, or a specified financial restitution payment. Under a biblical system of economic substitution, the victim would be required by the court to specify the minimum amount of money he would be willing to accept in exchange for not having mutilation imposed on the criminal. The victim would not be allowed to present a false estimate about how much restitution he would be willing to accept. This would be false witness or perjury. He could not come back a second time after the criminal had refused to pay the thousand ounces of gold and say, All right, I'll accept 500 ounces of gold instead of his tooth. By lowering his demand, he would be admitting that his initial offer had been higher than his minimal demand. In short, the injured victim must know in advance that by making an excessive initial financial demand, he might price himself out of the market. He therefore has to be reasonable if he is really after money. He might wind up with nothing except the pain and disfigurement of the criminal as his reward. He must ask for less money in order to increase his likelihood of collecting anything. The judges would present the victim's specified choices to the criminal, and the criminal would have the option of refusing to pay the 1,000 ounces. The judges would then have the physical penalty imposed. The man condemned by the victim to permanent physical mutilation would have the option of making a counterproposal if the victim had offered no option to mutilation. The victim could then consider it. Again, the criminal would be allowed only one offer. If the victim still says no, and the criminal then makes a higher offer, he can be presumed to have given false witness when he made the first offer. By limiting the victim to presenting the criminal with only one set of options, and by giving the criminal the opportunity to make a single counteroffer only when no alternative option has been offered by the victim, the judges can obtain honest offers from the beginning. The court would allow only one form of second-chance bids. If the criminal is unwilling to pay the victim the money payment demanded, but he is willing to pay in some other way than money, he would have the opportunity to present the alternative or group of alternatives for the victim to choose from. But if the victim turns this counteroffer down, the criminal will then have to undergo mutilation. He is governed by the equivalent rule that governs the victim, honest bidding. He offers his highest price or best bid. If it is rejected, he must suffer the physical consequences. The authority of the judges. The integrity of society's covenantal civil judges is fundamental to the preservation of social order. The Bible warns rulers and judges to render honest judgment. They are forbidden to take bribes, although it is not forbidden for righteous people to offer bribes to corrupt judges. Judges are to render honest judgment because the Bible requires it and because God requires it, not because it is made personally profitable for them to do so. When citizens distrust the judicial system, a fundamental weakness exists in the society. Bribes are a sign of such weakness and distrust. The judges establish the initial penalty payment in the case of a notorious ox that has killed a person. Exodus 21.30 What about in the case of the crime of mutilation? Shouldn't the judges set the penalty? In the case of a non-injurious, accidental, premature birth caused by another man's violent behavior, the husband establishes the penalty, and the judges then impose it. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him and he shall pay, as the judges determine." Exodus 21:22. This implies that the judges can overrule the husband if the penalty is thought by them to be excessive. The authority of the judges is supreme in this case. If it is true that the Bible requires the judges to assess the penalty in the case of bodily mutilation, just as they do in the case of criminal manslaughter, the owner of the notorious ox, then they must make the decision economic restitution, or physical restitution. Both are legitimate forms of vengeance. Both are true forms of restitution. If the judges are solely responsible for making this determination, then sovereignty is transferred to them and away from the victim and the criminal, who might prefer to come to a different, more mutually beneficial transaction. This raises the question of righteous judgment. Why should the victim and the criminal be excluded from the process of the setting of the penalty? After all, in the case of the non-injurious premature birth, the husband has the opportunity of setting a preliminary penalty. Why not in the case of mutilation? One solution to this dilemma would be to allow the judges to assess the original penalty, estimating what the defense of an eye is worth in the open market, and then make a preliminary announcement of the size of the payment. Then either of the two contending parties can make a counteroffer, which the judges would accept if both parties agree. In this way, the authority of the law would have a visible manifestation, ruled by the judges, but the type of restitution could be modified at the discretion of the affected parties. It would be analogous to parents making an arranged marriage. Either of the two children can legitimately protest and refuse the other, but initiating the marriage would be the right of the parents. It is important that collusion between the judges and either the victim or the convicted criminal be prevented. To help prevent such collusion, dual rights are established, the right of the victim to demand different restitution from that set by the judges, and the right of the criminal to make a counteroffer to the victim when he receives notice of the judge's initial proposal. There's another factor to consider. Economic value is both objective and subjective. The judges are required by God to attempt to assess the cost to the victim as well as the cost to the criminal, but they may make a mistake. There is no scientifically or theoretically valid way for judges to assess the comparative costs of injuries, since these costs are based on other people's subjective utilities. For example, if either the victim or the criminal is a right-handed skilled craftsman whose hand is his calling and he has lost or is faced with the threat of loss of his right hand, the penalty is not easily fitted to the crime. Say that the victim has lost his right hand and he is the craftsman. The criminal is a left-handed lawyer whose right hand is seemingly less crucial to him than the right hand of the victim. Is the loss of the criminal's right hand really a case of hand for hand? How can the judges determine what is a really comparable penalty? Hasn't the victim suffered far greater loss? Of course, the reverse could be true. A left-handed lawyer loses his right hand, and the criminal is a right-handed craftsman. Is the physically identical penalty Really comparable in terms of the costs to each person? The System in Operation Consider a hypothetical case. A criminal is convicted for having mutilated another man's hand. Let us consider three possible outcomes. First, the judges determine that the criminal should lose his hand. Why would they impose this penalty? Because the criminal is a known brawler. He used a weapon to bash a victim's hand making it permanently useless. The judges decide that the best thing for society would be for the criminal to have his hand bashed into uselessness or amputated so that he could not easily repeat the offense. The victim at this point might prefer economic restitution. The brawler also might be willing to pay to keep his hand. In such a case, the judges would be placing their perception of the public's need for future social peace above the economic needs of the victim. The victim would have the option of asking for a different kind of punishment. The victim may want money, so he appeals the the decision and demands monetary compensation. The judges then go to the criminal. Is he willing to pay the victim the proposed monetary restitution? The criminal has three choices. Pay the money, accept the judge's original penalty, or offer a third proposal to the victim. If the criminal turns down the request of the victim to be paid... And if the victim rejects the criminal's counteroffer, then the judge's original sentence would be carried out. He would lose the use of his hand. Second, the judges impose a monetary penalty that is too low in the opinion of the victim. He demands more money. The criminal has a new set of choices. Pay the higher penalty, make a counteroffer of something other than money, or lose his hand. He no longer has the option of paying the original penalty established by the judge's. The victim has overruled the judges on the question of the appropriate monetary penalty. Third, the judges impose a monetary penalty. The victim is outraged. He believes that the criminal should lose his hand, just as he lost his. The judges then go to the criminal. You must lose your hand, the victim says. Do you wish to offer the victim more money than we determined originally, or offer something other than money? The criminal makes his decision. If he decides to offer more money or another non-monetary option, he has only one opportunity to persuade the victim. If the victim refuses to accept the counteroffer, the criminal loses his hand. By allowing the victim to demand different compensation, money, or service rather than physical mutilation, or more money than the judges have imposed, or physical mutilation rather than money, The proposed restitution process allows subjective value to assert itself. The victim determines whether or not the judges have really offered him what his loss is worth to him personally. If he thinks he is being cheated, he can demand that his enemy pay more or suffer the same physical loss. The criminal also has the right to substitute the loss of of an appendage. If the judges determine that he should lose the appendage, rather than pay what he believes is an excessive economic demand by the victim... If the demand is higher than the judges originally set. The Bible does not anywhere indicate that the criminal has any legal, formal ability to overturn the final decision of the highest civil court of appeal. If the judges impose a particular penalty, mutilation, for example, and the victim is satisfied, then the criminal has no formal right of appeal. He cannot override the decision of the judges, but in fact he really does have the indirect ability to appeal, and appeal through the victim he or his representatives can approach the victim with a counterproposal. Look, I would be willing to pay 100 ounces of gold if you would appeal the decision of the judges to have me mutilated. If this is satisfactory to the victim, he then appeals the decision, and the criminal agrees to the new terms of restitution. The judges are not allowed to overturn this mutually agreed-upon form of restitution. If the court sets an economic penalty, and the victim agrees... The criminal still has a legal, formal ability to substitute his own mutilation for the economic restitution. He can demand the explicit physical sanction of the law, lex talionis. This means that the law upholds his right to demand the punishment specified by God. Bargaining is legitimate, but both the victim and the criminal can insist on the specified penalty. If the victim insists on physical mutilation, the criminal has no choice. If the criminal insists on physical mutilation, the victim has no choice. Bargaining, however, is likely. By establishing the three-way system of establishing penalties, judges, victim, and convicted criminal, the judicial system receives a means of making objective approximations of the inescapably subjective eye-for-eye standard, subjective to both victim and criminal. By permitting subjective estimations of loss by both the victim and the criminal, the judges find a way to offer compensation to the victim that he believes is comparable to the crime. The criminal, however, is allowed to counteroffer a different economic form of restitution penalty if he believes that the cost of a physical penalty is too high. Conclusion My discussion of the possible outworkings of the eye-for-eye passage should not be understood as the last word on the subject. It is, however, a first word. I want readers to understand that the biblical justice system is just, workable, and effective. The lex talionis should not be dismissed as some sort of peculiar juridical testament of a long-defunct primitive agricultural society. What the Bible spells out as judicially binding is vastly superior to anything offered by modern humanism in the name of civic justice. The problems in dealing with the actual imposition of the lex talionis principle are great. The history of the people of God testifies to these difficulties. We have few, if any, examples of Christian societies that have attempted to impose the eye-for-eye principle literally. The basic principle is clear. The punishment should fit the crime. By allowing the victim to demand restitution in the form pleasing to him, And by allowing the criminal to counteroffer something more pleasing to him, the penalty comes close to matching the effects of the crime, as assessed by the victim. Each party gets to make one offer. If the victim offers a choice between penalties, the criminal chooses which one he prefers, or can offer something completely different. If the victim specifies one and only one penalty, mutilation, the criminal is entitled to counteroffer. If the victim specifies only a money payment, but the criminal prefers mutilation on an eye-for-eye basis, then he has the right to choose mutilation. The judges can establish the original restitution payment, whether physical or economic, but the two affected parties should have the final determination. This places limits on the state. The economic assets involved in this auction process are transferred or retained by the person who is more concerned with economic capital than with physical mutilation. In this way, biblical justice is furthered. The modern Western world has not imposed deliberate, permanent physical mutilation on violent criminals. These criminals, when convicted, have been imprisoned. They have been compelled to pay fines to the state. In very few cases had they been compelled to make monetary restitution to the victims, The result has been escalating violence against private citizens as well as the escalating power of the state. Biblical law imposes penalties on violent criminals that tend to reduce the amount of violent crime. Biblical penalties encourage criminals to count the cost in advance. In the case of crimes of passion, the convicted passionate criminals would be reminded of the benefits of self-control. That stump at the end of an arm is a better reminder than a string tied around a finger. So is the loss of several years' worth of savings, or several years as an indentured servant. What men sow, they shall also reap. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 A godly society's criminal justice system, organized around the lex talionis principle, provides criminals with a glimpse of, or preliminary down payment to, this cosmic principle of justice.